Hello and welcome to Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Talbot. Great to be back, Frank. Very exciting. Very exciting. And we're back um, for a one-off special episode with some great guests. We, um, we got them in, we chatted to them. I say in, it's a virtual studio. This is a post-pandemic world we're in. Um, but we couldn't sit in this episode, so here it is. Um, it's not part of a full series. We may do uh, another one of those later in the year. But, but for now, uh, we wanted to bring you our conversation with Morgan Housel and Chris Davis. Now, Morgan Housel, some of you will know as the author of the best-selling The Psychology of Money. He's also a partner at the Collaborative Fund. And Chris Davis, you will know or may not know, but you should know from Davis Funds, the asset manager that he runs, which I believe his father also ran and maybe even traces its roots back to his grandfather as well. So some real storied history there. And yeah, Frank, they, they joined us. They've been working together on a, on a project. They're both very interested in behavioral finance and how that affects our decision-making, et cetera. Um, and they joined us for a, a, a wide-ranging and very interesting conversation, Frank. Yeah, I thought they were, they were really, really excellent, actually. Good to have a double act. Takes the pressure off, off you and I to actually say anything. Good, good, to have a, good to have a competent double act on the podcast for a change, yeah. Um. Uh, yeah, I thought, I thought they both brought significant wisdom uh, on the basic tenets of investment, um, the do's and don'ts, particularly from a behavioral standpoint. So that's, that's what's coming up. Yeah, exactly. So I, I should specify they've been working on a series of videos together called Mastering the Mental Game of Investing. So they're both sort of, frankly, ideal guests for this podcast, because really what mistakes were made comes down to is, you know, sort of your your behaviors, how, how you stay on top of those, how you stop them from, you know, making you make bad mistakes. Uh, and I think really what this, this conversation comes down to was two, two of the key tenants to successful investing, buying and holding. And without, without spoiling it too much, one of them has a mistake around buying and one of them has a mistake around holding. And so without further ado, here was our conversation with Morgan and Chris. We start this the same way, which is really easy for us because we don't have to think of a new question each time, which is to ask our guests uh, what has been you know, sort of one or two of the larger investment mistakes they've made and crucially what they learned from them. Now, I don't know who would like to go first, Morgan or, or, or Chris? Um. I'm, I'm happy to jump in here. There's really two that stick out that I've thought about a lot. One was probably the biggest mistakes I've made, but I don't regret these in the slightest, which is that when I started investing, I was probably 18 or 19. I started by day trading penny stocks and that obviously didn't work. And then I moved on to day trading like large cap stocks and that didn't work. And then it was like, oh, I'll become a long-term investor. I'll hold stocks for a week or two. And that obviously didn't work. So I, I, I went through the whole gamut of investing strategies before I landed on kind of where I am now. I say I don't regret that because there is no better way to teach yourself about risk and what doesn't work than to burn your own fingers. And I am actually so grateful and thankful that I learned those lessons when I was 19 uh, versus 45 and trying to put my kids through college. Like I, like I, I, I think every investor will learn that lesson, but it's just when are you going to learn it and how quickly... Are you going to come to come to terms with that lesson? That's the first one. The second mistake that I think is actually a little bit bigger 
is there were two times in my life when I tried a new product for the first time and it was so apparent to me that this company was amazing and special. The two times were once, I think it was 2007, uh, I went to the only Tesla dealership in the world. It was in Los Angeles. This is when Tesla was a legitimate startup. It was a tiny, tiny, know-nothing company. And I remember sitting in the car and thinking, this company is going to change the world. That's not hindsight bias. I really remember thinking that. And I remember thinking, when this company goes public, I'm going to buy shares. And guess what I did not do when Tesla went public? I did not buy shares. Haven't since. That was the first one. The second one was, I think, 2004. I visited a restaurant for the first time called Chipotle. And I remember eating a Chipotle burrito and thinking, this is truly special. If a burrito can be special, this is it. And I remember thinking too, when this company goes public, I'm going to buy shares and I did not. So both of those companies are, I don't know, 100x from when they IPO'd, maybe more than that. And I knew they were both special. I knew in my heart and I didn't do anything about it. Why do you think, why do you, think you didn't? Surely there are examples of products you've bought and thought, God, this is a great product. You know, I want to get involved in this. And you, and you didn't. Or if you had, it would have been a bad idea. What, what held you back? Well, look, I, I, think, I think the reason I didn't, if I'm going to make an excuse for myself, is I'm not a stock picker. We can get into how I invest later, but I've never been a stock picker. And so maybe just the idea of, oh, this company's special and therefore I should buy stock, it's just like that's never kind of been in my, in my blood. And, but I think in those situations, I remember, not, this is not hindsight, I remember at the time thinking this company is so special that in hindsight, I'm like, I should have done something about it. Even if it was a small amount of money, I should have done something about it. But you know what? What what's strange, uh, Morgan, is that the harder thing is even if you did, would you have held it? And and I think that's you know it is you know we often think back you know my dad tells a story about you know basically I remember it he came home uh, from this meeting he worked at a conservative trust bank and he said you know. I had this lunatic pair of hippies who didn't even have the decency to wear shoe, proper shoes. They arrived in my office in sandals. Uh, uh, no tie, no to, top hat either, Chris. Yeah, yeah. And, and of, of course, it was you know, Steve Jobs and it wear. was the Apple IPO. And, uh, and he came home and sort of told me about how ridiculous this sounded. But even if he had bought it, you think about all of the times along the way when you would have said, okay, I've, I've had my ride, I, I've got to get out. And, and I think sometimes the, 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 the biggest, well, for me, the biggest mistakes are, it tend to be not what I failed to buy, it's what I bought and then sold. Uh, and so when you think with Tesla, all of the times along the way, when you would have said, well, this is crazy, I've got to get out at this price, I'm, I'm up threefold, I'm up fivefold, I'm up tenfold. And, uh, that patience is, I think, sometimes a source of even bigger regret because you did buy it and then you did something stupid actively versus at least you failed to do something smart. Uh, that, that You can sleep a little better at night than actively doing something stupid. You're 100% correct, Craig. And, and, and to answer your question, would I have held? The answer in high is, is almost certainly no. Because if there is something that is in my blood in terms of how I think about investing, it's the value investing gene. And would there have been a time after I was up 2x, 5x on Tesla where it was trading at 500 times revenue, a thousand times Elon's ego, whatever you want to phrase it as? The answer is yes, of course I would have sold at that point. So this is all hindsight. Uh, and you know that this like quote unquote mistake doesn't doesn't bother me that much. It's just been like to the extent that I think about 
great businesses, to the the extent that I think about moats, to the extent that I think about competitive advantages, sometimes it has bothered me a little bit that the two times in my life that I feel like I really genuinely identified one, I did nothing. Uh, can I can I come back to your your first mistake here? You talked about you were day trading penny stocks and you moved on to day trading large caps. Did it did it clean you out each time? Did you borrow money to go back into the market? I mean, how 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 big a sum was it that you were losing at nineteen? It, it it definitely did not clean me out. And like, what was the sum? I don't know. I, my guess it was in you know two thousand bucks, a thousand bucks, and I, the, Which is and a the lot losses- to a nineteen year old. To a 19-year-old, yeah. And the losses were not catastrophic in percentage terms even. But I remember thinking, or I remember it, it was a realization of maybe I had lost, I don't know, 5%, 10%, 20%, something like that. But I remember thinking, I clearly have no idea what I'm doing here. I'm clearly just throwing money at the wall and hoping something happens. But what's interesting is that in the, in the mind of a 19-year-old with an E-Trade account who's watching CNBC, it is very easy to, to convince yourself that you are the next George Soros. You are the next Warren Buffett. Well, so I had. Well, it's just why, Morgan, you're so right to say that if it had worked, it would have been a catastrophe. Yes. And if it, the longer if it had worked, the bigger the catastrophe would have become. And so, so learning so the wrong lessons from success is almost the most dangerous thing that can happen because that is, you, that is you so keep accurate. Piling on and piling on, and then you end up with catastrophic loss versus the early loss that I learned the lesson. It was painful, but I could recover. I wonder. I, we might come back to this. Well, depending where we go, but, but but I think obviously we saw some of this in 2020, right? With the sort of you know with 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 the with the meme stock rally and just the sort of Wall Street bets crowd and that whole era, and it probably started a bit before that of just stocks just go up and you know this this huge wave of uh, retail investors jumping in. You know, Robinhood trades, you know, commissions were at zero. And then, look, we all know the reasons as to why this sort of came about. But but yeah, you've got these people who for two years, everything, everything, <laughs> everything just went up. And, 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 and if that was a lot of people's first introduction to quote unquote investing, then yeah, it was sort of terrible, wasn't it? Because they, everyone That's, thought absolutely. they were amazing. I am, so, I am so grateful that my lesson was a quick loss because if your first lesson at 19 is an enormous win, then you are convinced that you are the next George Soros and then you're going to double down with margins and options and whatnot. So I actually think that the the cohort of investors who started trading in 2020, 2021, the, the Robin Hood generation, and a lot of them in, during that year or two, during that 18-month period, made ungodly fortunes. That, I think, is a curse on them because it's going to inflate their, uh, it's going to inflate their confidence more than their ability substantially. Well, Chris, we, you so far have escaped um, to some degree telling us your, your bigger investment mistakes. So um, maybe we'll, we have I'm sure, plenty of follow-ups for Morgan on his, and we'll come back to those. But um, yeah, what stands out in your mind? I mean, you mentioned already um yeah sell discipline or set selling earlier and, and seeing things continue to go is, is that where your mind's at or are there, are there bigger things you want to share with us you know it sort of ties to what morgan says about you know over the course of your career you have very few really really powerful opportunities to do something smart and if you get those right the then subsequently unwinding that fabulous decision for me, has become a source of enormous regret. And so, uh, uh, you know, if I think about the biggest examples uh, in my life, well, one was Costco. I mean, we bought 17 million shares of Costco in a single day at like 28. It had fallen from 50 uh, to 28. 
And at 28, it was, they weren't giving it away, but we had followed the company a long time and we had admired them. And every single time I visited that company, I thought I've never met a company so honorably managed that gives, creates more value for its, for its, for its customers that is run with a culture of greater integrity for the long term. My God, you had Bill Gates Sr. and Charlie Munger on the board. I mean, you had everything. Plus and, hot dogs, right? And the stock mm-hmm. went from, you know, 28 to 38 to 48 to 58 to 60. You know, and I started thinking, gee, you know, it's still just a store. And at, at 20 or 25 times earnings, you know, we just began selling. And eventually, you know, once you start selling at 62 and it goes to 72 and it goes to 82, then you're really selling. And, uh, and you know, Charlie Munger said to me, look, I'm not saying it's a, an enormous buy at this high price. I just don't think you're going to do a lot better. I don't think you're going to find a better business. And and I regret it not because it was the stock that has gone up the most since I sold it. That would certainly have been Amazon that we bought, you know, when the distressed bonds were yielding 15% to maturity. And, uh, you know, we made a quick double and thought, well, that's getting rich uh, for our blood. Uh, and, uh, you know, we bought it back again at three times the price. And, you know, and so I have a lot of regret with Amazon in terms of the scale of how much it went up. But with Costco, it's much more because what an enormous gift it is to be able to have a quiet mind about a company like that, where you just know the unquestioned integrity. And I think one of the disadvantages of being a professional investor versus you know, simply investing in your own account is that you somehow feel every day you come to work and you have to do something. And you start getting questions of, well, if you put 4% of your portfolio into Costco when it was at, I'll make up the numbers, but 13 times earnings, and all of a sudden it's 22 times earnings and it's 8% of your portfolio uh, or 7%, what are you doing? That doesn't make any portfolio management sense. You have a larger bet on a company that is farther above your estimate of intrinsic value or or closer to your estimate of intrinsic value than it was when you bought it. And yet it's a bigger bet. Obviously you should be selling. And so you start thinking about consistency and how I'm going to explain it. And, and I think if I had just been running my own money, I never would have sold a share. Now, could argue I might not have bought a share because I wouldn't have known it. And but I think the the regrets that I have around the the businesses where really I admired them so much, but felt coming to work I had to continue to sell them. And I I'd probably put Costco and Amazon at, at the top of that list. And in many ways they're very similar businesses and had very similar cultures for a long period of time. What this is this is maybe an unfair question. What can you do to improve on that? Well, what did you learn from that? How do you think you now have a better um, sort of sell discipline as a result of both both Amazon and, and Costco? Um, do you do anything differently as a result of those? Well, it's a very it it you know I've always said a very at different times in our firm's history, people have said, well, why do you bother managing a mutual fund with retail investors? you know, versus you could run it as a partnership, you could, you know, and I've always said, I like the stewardship part of what we do. I like that, you know, our, our average client might have $27,000 with us. It's, it's, a, a, it's life-changing for them. And it creates an enormous sense of accountability and responsibility. And, 
And for me, it sort of relates to vocation and this idea of, of stewardship. And um, but where it probably has the most the really, I would say the only negative impact is that when you're thinking about managing somebody's life savings, uh, the idea of having, you know, 25% in a single name feels very risky. And uh, and mod- even modern portfolio theory, which most of which I don't totally subscribe to, but but the idea of what is the appropriate level of diversification. Now, if you're managing money for somebody that is enormously rich and losing 25% of their money will make no difference in how they live, the choices they make, the security of their children, and so on. Um, well, of course, then you're, you, you would be very comfortable leaving that, that company in to become a larger and larger percentage of your assets. So I, I would not change the model of what we do, which is trying to serve the ultimate end investor uh, by trying to, to have that relationship uh, with somebody that has their savings with us and it really matters. But I would say that it gives me a different attitude about diversification than I would have if I was simply running my own money or running money for 10 wealthy families. Can I ask a question? I mean, obviously, you talked about your mistakes and stuff. We're, we're in the middle of a downturn in markets. You know, the world is changing, or at least we're told, you know, as we move from zero to, to 5% interest rates, whatever it's going to end up at. How much does your first crisis that you experience, the first point in which your money starts going down, impact the investor that you become? And I say this because Alex and I, you know, I started working just before the financial crisis or 2005. Alex started working, you know, in the midst of it, trying to get his first job. And I think it's made me more cautious as an individual in that in that decade, that fifteen years. I think I've lost out on a lot. Well, Morgan, why don't you start? Because you you know, in a way, when I think of the history of like the Motley Fool, and you know, there there was so much wisdom in that organization, but it became so associated with what was at the time an enormous bubble. And but you know, what would you say? Well, I think it's less about when you experience your first downturn. And I think it's more about the age and the, and the, and the point of life that you are at. I think if you experience your first downturn when you are in your twenties and you're still really learning a baseline foundation of knowledge about how the the economy works and the stock market works, that is very impressionable. I think if you feel, if you experience your first downturn in your forties, which tend to be the most consequential financial years for people when they are in their big earning and savings years, they might be saving for retirement in their, in, in, in the biggest way, they might be putting their kids through college. If you experience a major financial loss, then when the stakes are the highest, that will leave a mark. So I think it's less about you know when it happens and more about like what phase of life you are in. But I think it's so easy for people to overlook how much of a scar and a mark their individual experiences will leave on them. Nothing is more persuasive than what you have experienced firsthand. So I can read about the Great Depression. I can read about the 1970s. I can read about the dot-com bubble. None of those three were I even were, were I investing in or even alive for, 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 for most of them. And so I think we are all products, if not prisoners, to our own past. And it is so easy to overlook that. Chris had mentioned, you know, made a little quip about, you know, his biggest mistake was not being born 30 years later. But it is so true that every single one of us would think differently about the world, not just investing, but about politics and all like all kinds of issues if we were born in a different generation. Yeah, you, you, mentioned, pretend- you mentioned in your book, obviously, Bill Gross, I think, has sort of famously said, you know, his, his biggest um, 
one of the biggest drivers for success was just when he was born. And, and right, he, he started he started investing as a bond, bond investor. He started investing as a bond investor in like 1982, and he retired in like 2017. Like he couldn't. He like top <laughs> he ticked and bottom it, yeah. ticked interest rates. It was perfect. Now, no, now even within that cohort he outperformed his peers who are investing during that same time period. So it's not to say that he's not skilled, but would Bill Gross have been the same bond investor that he was if he was born 20 years earlier or 20 years later? By his own words, no. And I often think too, I think, I think you can put virtually any other investor in that category. Would Warren Buffett have been Warren Buffett as he is today if he were born 30 years later? I still think he would have been an enormously successful investor. But given, you know, just the timing of when he met Benjamin Graham and the kind of investing that Ben Graham had versus like as it lined up with the 1950s and 60s, like it it, it would have been different. It, it, it wouldn't necessarily have been worse, so to speak, but it would have been very different. So all of us, we go so, so far out of our way to learn about investing and have our own thoughts and have our own, like our own determination and free will. But so much of what we do in life is just a product of where and when we were born. Yeah, you know, it's funny when you when you mention Warren, we it, it's so easy to talk about Warren as a learning machine, you know, adapting to different. But I would say one of his superpowers is being an unlearning machine. You know, it it's because what Morgan says is so right. We're so shaped by those early formative experiences. We don't even realize how much and once you become prisoner to that and the world evolves in a different direction, uh, it becomes very, very hard to unlearn, and uh, and letting go uh, of of things that worked or things that were true uh, in a temporal sense uh, uh, becomes so critical to success. And I think it is actually one of the most difficult things to do. You know, you asked about those those sort of early experiences. I I remember I was having lunch with my grandmother. She was ninety eight at the time, and. Uh, and the maitre d' of the restaurant came over and said, you know, I'm so sorry to disturb you. You know, I've been, I've got a call from your housekeeper, uh, Mrs. Davis, and, and your house is on fire. And I, I remember saying, I want to live long enough to have the same response my grandmother had, which was, oh, not again. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, as, as we go into the most recent banking crisis, I realize it's my fourth bank crisis. Uh, and so, you know, that is... But but I think the conversation about Bill Gross is what I want to seize on because the formative experience that I remember and sort of shaped me as a kid was my father and grandfather's sort of absolute awareness of the devastating impact of inflation. And it just, I mean, I remember, you know, him teaching us lessons about compound interest where you know, we go to the bank, we were getting, you know, 12, 13% rates at the bank. And so even as a kid, that compounds enough that you're very aware that your $25 has turned into $50. And, um, but I remember the gas lines. I remember my grandfather calling bond certificates of confiscation. I remember the pension plans all going broke, family fortunes being wiped out because they didn't want to take risk. They wanted to sit in government bonds. And my grandfather saying, you know, they think they're not taking risk. That is the riskiest asset uh, of any major asset class is, is bonds. And so, of course, I emerged into the business, you know, in, in the 80s. And exactly, you know, to the, to the Bill Gross comment, 
I spend all my time saying, well, you know, bonds are certificates of confiscation. You know, bonds are terrible. And and I watch bonds generate this just outstanding performance with almost no volatility, you know, this. And of course, fortunes were created just buying bonds. Uh, and uh, I, it was so hard for me to sort of not uh, hold on to the idea that, you know, the, the appropriate rate of interest is seven, eight, nine. Now, of course, it goes to show that if I keep my damn neckties in my closet long enough, maybe they'll come back. Uh, because, uh, you know, being, being out of sync for 30 years in financial markets is actually just a cycle. You know, cycles last about the length of a career. That's how long it takes for there to be nobody in the business that remembers what it used to be like. And, you know, there is almost nobody investing now that invested at a period of time when you were losing money in interest rates. The people that really were uh, are all retiring. I had a fabulous dinner with my friend, mentor, uh, Bill Miller, and he said he remembered for years in his career that uh, there was a strategy managing individual portfolios that you would take a capital loss in your bonds and then you could use that and invest money in equities and you'd get a tax loss for your bond. And uh, and he said he had a client and he sold a bond and, and she said, uh, and he said, well, you actually have a gain on this. And she said, is that legal? <laughs> and, you know, because for 30 years she had never seen that. She didn't know you could get a gain in a bond. And uh, so I think that uh, in some ways it's hard to overlearn the, you know, to let go of the lessons, but it's also hard to overly stick with them. So I, I have no answer on that, but but it is amazing how much that inflation experience was formative. There's a very famous book. His name is is escaping me, but basically the premise is there is a very long history of major wars and battles taking place every 30 to 40 years. Because similar to Chris's point, that's how long it takes for one generation of politicians and generals to forget the lessons of the last war. And that's when you have a generation that comes in and says, let's go do it. It's it's ready to do it. Where the last generation said, let's never do that ever again. And I think the same exact trend happens in finance with things like inflation and market cycles. So with that in mind, just 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 quickly, what should you be doing now then, now that it's returned? Because we actually did this study. We tracked portfolio managers around the world. There were only sort of, was it seven or eight out of 18,000 that were active when inflation was, you know, a thing. Um, and and what what do you do now then? Well, I'll Broad start by saying that, that I think anytime you're trying to optimize your portfolio to a macroeconomic outlook, you're, you're starting in a game that maybe a few people can succeed at, but most can't. Uh, it is, you know, the uh, Galbraith's wonderful comment that the, the the purpose of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. Uh, I think that that's true. So I would say that if you're really changing your style now, it's because you made big mistakes in the past. So I think, you know, if you buy a business with this idea that my returns are not going to be driven by my trying to guess an exit multiple, which that exit multiple would be tied to interest rates, but rather my returns are going to be driven by the, I'll call it earnings for shorthand, but the earnings yield of that business relative to my cost over over a long, long period of time. Well, then you think, well, I'm going to own it through a recession. I'm going to own it through periods when the dollar is going down, when the dollar is going up, when interest rates are rising, when interest rates are falling. 
And you start thinking about qualities like resiliency, durability, pricing power. And so it's easy to say if we're in an inflation environment, you know, owning an ad firm is probably a good idea. You have pricing power. You don't have a lot of capital intensity. You're not having to constantly increase your capital spending and consequence of rising rates so that your capital spending is constantly outpacing your depreciation. You know, you can make a lot of what I'll call tactical decisions around that. But ultimately, I think you, if you start optimizing to that, I, there is a very ser- scary scenario out there where we don't have inflation, where we actually have deflation. And that's not one that people should take off the table. And so I think once you're trying to optimize your portfolio to, ooh, unemployment's going up, who benefits? Let me rotate into that. I think you're already into a loser's game. And, you know, Scott Galloway made some comment about, you know, in his wonderful, very short talk about, you know, don't follow your passion. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw that, but it's a it's a wonderful uh, uh, quip. But but he said, look, if you're Jay-Z, you should probably follow your passion. But none of you are Jay-Z. So don't try to become a DJ. And a, I haven't heard and, Frank rap. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, And similarly, you know, it, the fact that 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 Stan Druckenmiller and George Soros and a handful of others have been able to build some of the greatest records in investing, anticipating and positioning for macroeconomic cycles, nobody else is George and Stan. Uh, let them do that and instead think about what business you can own through different cycles. Well, that was our conversation with Morgan and Chris and Frank, yeah, a, lo- a lot in there. Obviously, we got some bonus lessons, not just from Morgan and Chris, but also via Charlie Munger and uh, Bill Miller. Thanks to thanks to Chris's liberal name dropping there. So, you know, four for the price of two, frankly, listener. So you're spoiled for choice. I think that's a little harsh. But yeah, no, he certainly uh, certainly rubbed shoulders with some significant people. And, and he has learned a lot. Both, both of them speak really eloquently about the topic of investment. There were there were so many little golden nuggets in there. I like this sort of notion of catastrophic losses being caused by overconfidence. I think it was Chris actually that spoke about it. You know, like the Robin Hood generation, they've had such a flat track, it's only gone up. They're so convinced of their golden touch that that it's gonna make them make bigger mistakes in the future. And and I think was it more than well, perhaps about- perhaps less so after twenty twenty two, but certainly for a couple of years they were they they were all gods, weren't they? And 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 maybe and maybe that that's already you know that's already shaken out. But it's more I thought Morgan's notion that the earlier the mistake comes, the better it is for you was a good one. It's also interesting, coupled with that, with how you do get scared by your first crises. So it's sort of like the good mistake would be to invest early and lose some money early, not too much, rather than I don't know, start making money in the middle of the. 2008 financial crisis and just be scared of the concept of investing full stop but but yeah definitely your early experiences scar you uh hopefully sort of for good rather than for bad i also really like this point that chris made around uh you know selling your winners too soon and um i think that's the kind of bit that's often forgotten in buy and hold isn't it uh, we talk about selling much more around kind of cutting your losses or sticking with things when they're down and watching them come back up. And we, I think, generally talk less around just holding on, having the nerve to hold on to things uh, when they go up and up and up and up and up and, uh, and not knowing when to give up on that or, or stick with that. Yeah, there was that thing about unwinding a brilliant decision, you know, d- dumping a stock at the wrong point. It's interesting. This week, I just heard uh, Buffett was talking about how the fact that 
Apple is such a huge chunk of Berkshire Hathaway, but in his mind, it's the best company he owns. He would own more if he could. Well, that's it, isn't it? And I thought I thought Chris made this interesting point where you know by saying, as a fund manager, sometimes you sort of do too much. You know, if it was entirely your own money, uh, maybe you'd be happy having a bigger concentration, let, letting one or two positions grow to be sort of you know double digit, twenty, thirty percent of a fund. Uh, but obviously, when you're running uh, pu- public money for retail investors. Uh, both from a sort of regulatory point of view and from a sort of you know concentration risk point of view, you don't do that. And I thought that was very interesting that managers perhaps actually you know don't always do exactly what they want, and, and as a result, performance can suffer. There was an interesting study here actually in, in the states a couple of weeks ago by uh, Jeff Patak and Morningstar, looking at the holdings of Kathy Wood's flagship fund, or the performance rather, um, and how actually things would have been a lot better if she just stuck with a portfolio from a few years ago and done nothing. So it's. It's an interesting point of discussion, I think. Yeah, this idea, I think Chris talked about it, as a professional investor means you need to come into the office and do something every day. The temptation to tinker is is so overwhelming and that's what you're fighting against behaviorally. Yeah, well, look, there we go. As you say, you know, Frank dropped in some Buffett. We got some Kathy Wood in there. I mean, this this is this chock full of names and lessons to learn this podcast. It's been great to see you again, Frank, and to do one of these. And um, yeah, hopefully, dear listener, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see you again soon. But on that note, it is goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. 